Good afternoon, and welcome to the Carvana fourth quarter and full year 2022 earnings conference call. All participants will be in listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please signal a conference specialist by pressing the star key followed by zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To ask a question, you may press star, then one on your telephone keypad. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. Please note, this event is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Meg Kean, Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you, Gary. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining us on Carvana's fourth quarter and full year 2022 earnings conference call. Please note that this call will be simultaneously webcast on the Investor Relations section of the company's corporate website at investors.carvana.com. The fourth quarter shareholder letter is also posted on the IR website. Additionally, we posted a set of supplemental financial tables for Q4, which can be found on the events and presentations page of our IR website. Joining me on the call today are Ernie Garcia, Chief Executive Officer, and Mark Jenkins, Chief Financial Officer. Before we start, I would like to remind you that the following discussion contains forward-looking statements within the meeting of the federal securities laws, including but not limited to Carvana's market opportunities and future financial results that involve risks and uncertainties that may cause actual results to differ materially from those discussed here. A detailed discussion of the material factors that cause actual results to differ from forward-looking statements can be found in the risk factors section of Carvana's most recent Form 10-K. The forward-looking statements and risks in this conference call are based on current expectations as of today, and Carvana assumes no obligation to update or revise them whatsoever as a result of new developments or otherwise. Our commentary today will include non-GAAP financial metrics. Unless otherwise specified, all references to GPU and SGNA will be to the non-GAAP metrics, and all references to EBITDA will be to adjusted EBITDA. Reconciliations between GAAP and non-GAAP metrics for our reported results can be found in our shareholder letter issued today, a copy of which can be found on our IR website. And now with that said, I'd like to turn the call over to Ernie Garcia. Ernie? Thanks, Meg. And thanks, everyone, for joining the call. Ten years ago, in January 2013, we launched Carvana in Atlanta, Georgia. We were a passionate group of people who believed we could build something new in the world that we would be proud of. What we aimed to do was simple, to change the way people buy and sell cars. There were a million little reasons to bet against us, and most people who cared enough to even be aware of what we were trying to do would have. But there were two big reasons why we believed we could do it. One, there was room for new offering that customers would love. Two, we were a scrappy group who cared and were ready to fight for our dream. We stand here 10 years later in a place it was hard to imagine from where we started. We built an offering customers do love. We have brought that offering to over 300 markets across the country. We have bought and sold cars in a whole new way to millions of people. And we've laid the foundations to buy and sell many millions more. The big things overpower the little things. This story skips a lot of time, and as a result, it skips a lot of detail and gives too simple an impression. It feels linear. But the truth is there were a lot of ups and downs along the way. There were high highs and there were low lows. There were fun days and there were hard days. I think the truth of building something new in the world is that there are usually more hard days than there are easy days, even though it doesn't sound that way in the stories. This is still true. Progress is rarely linear, and 2022 reminded us of that again. So what happened in 2022? The story is straightforward. One, we came into the year positioned for growth, similar to what we'd experienced in, prior, in the prior nine years. Two, after the pandemic, snarled automotive supply chains and historically rapidly rising interest rates combined to dramatically impact the affordability of used cars. Three, rising interest rates and market sentiment drove a significant shift in our priorities away from growth and toward profitability. Four, this combined to lead to markedly lower volumes than we had positioned for, and as a result, we've been carrying excess costs. 
2022 had a lot of hard days. But we're a scrappy group, and hard days aren't always the worst thing in the world for scrappy people. Scrappy people find a way, and we're finding a way. The hard days are making us better, and we're doing our best work right now. As part of this work, we have three major milestones that we are marching toward. The first step is to drive the business to break-even adjusted EBITDA. This is our current goal, and we will discuss the key drivers of this goal more in these remarks. The second step is to drive the business to significant positive unit economics. Break-even adjusted EBITDA is a milestone, but it is not our goal. Our goal is positive free cash flow. The third step is to return to growth. Since launching in 2013, we have made capital investments of more than $4 billion, building the nation's largest used vehicle inspection and reconditioning infrastructure, first-party automotive logistics network, and last-mile automotive delivery network. We believe the investments we've already made lay the groundwork for not only significant growth in the future, but significantly more efficient growth that is significantly profitable. Today, we're focused on the first step, and we are well on our way with high visibility into the progress we expect to make. First, we expect to continue our SG&A expense reduction plan by reducing quarterly SG&A expenses by approximately $100 million in aggregate over the next two quarters. This will complete over a $1 billion annualized SG&A cost reduction since the first quarter of 2022. We expect these expense reductions to be broad-based across all large SG&A expense components, but importantly, we do not expect a future reduction for us to be part of this plan. Second, we expect our weekly retail unit sales volume to stabilize relative to the declines we saw in the second half of 2022 as the seasonal headwinds we faced at that time transitioned to seasonal tailwinds. Stabilizing weekly retail unit sales volume will allow our SG&A expense savings to catch up to retail unit volumes, allowing us to demonstrate SG&A leverage that was elusive during periods of retail unit declines. Third, we expect a substantial reduction in our inventory size, which we accelerated in Q4, to lead to significant gains in retail GPU. While we don't expect to see meaningful gains on retail GPU in Q1, we expect to see the benefits of reducing inventory size become apparent in the following quarters. The progress we are making shows up first in operational metrics and then flows into financial metrics later as those operational efficiencies get rolled out and utilized across the business. Across all operating groups, the operational progress we have already made and are continuing to make is significant. In logistics, our average delivery distance is down 25% since early 2022. In market operations, we have built scheduling systems that currently allow us to pair over one out of three retail deliveries with the vehicle pickup, up from one out of 14 retail sales just one year ago. In customer care, our advocates are spending 40% less time on the phone per sale than they were in early 2022. And our vending machine pickup rates have more than doubled since the start of last year, with 40% of our customers nationwide now picking up their car at a vending machine, even though we only have vending machines in a subset of our markets. Importantly, we have done all this while improving the quality of our customer experiences over the last six months. As is often the case when working through these transitions and when the operational progress is beginning to convert into financial progress, there are some one-time items and extrapolations that need to be made to really see the quality of the progress we are currently making. These are outlined in the shareholder letter, and Mark will provide some color on them as well, but the progress is really beginning to show up. This will continue to get clear and to require less explanation over time as we expect the combination of these three factors to lead to significantly improved adjusted EBITDA profitability over the next two quarters. 2022 was a hard year, and we still have a lot of hard work in front of us to get to where we want to be, but we have a clear plan, and we are executing. This is still a 40 million unit a year market on average. We still have just 1% market share. We are still a passionate, scrappy group who cares and who's ready to fight for our dream. Our customers do love our offering. We have built the capabilities and laid the foundations to buy and sell cars with millions and millions of customers, and there are still a million little reasons to bet against us. We expect the big things to overpower the little things just as they have in the past. We are firmly on the path to building the nation's largest and most profitable automotive retailer and to achieving our mission of changing the way people buy cars. The march continues. Mark. Thank you, Ernie, and thank you all for joining us today. 
Our results in 2022 were driven by numerous external factors, as well as our internal decisions made to shift priorities toward profitability. We came into 2022 significantly overbuilt for the volume we ultimately realized. Through the year, we have been executing our plan to drive profitability by steadily reducing expenses, normalizing inventory size, and executing profitability initiatives that make us more efficient, more resilient, and more flexible. For the full year 2022, retail units sold totaled 412,296, a decrease of 3% year over year. While this was the first year that our retail units sold declined year over year, 2022 marked our ninth consecutive year of market share gains against a backdrop of double-digit industry declines. Revenue totaled $13.604 billion in 2022, an increase of 6% year over year, marking our ninth consecutive year of revenue growth. We finished the year as the second largest seller of used vehicles in the country for the third consecutive year. The scale that we have already achieved and the timeline on which we have achieved it demonstrates the long-standing strength of our customer offering. Due to the dynamic nature of the current environment, we will focus our remaining remarks on fourth quarter results with a particular focus on sequential changes and the unique items impacting the quarter, as well as our near-term outlook. Our long-term financial goal is to generate significant net income and free cash flow. In service of this goal, in the near term, our management team is focused on driving progress on a set of non-GAAP financial metrics that are inputs into this long-term goal. In order to provide clear visibility into our progress, beginning in Q4, we are reporting two new non-GAAP metrics, non-GAAP gross profit and non-GAAP SG&A expense that adjust for certain non-cash and non-recurring revenues and expenses. We are also updating our adjusted EBITDA definition to exclude revenue from root warrants, as well as share-based compensation and restructuring expenses. We provide more detail on these metrics in the supplemental financial tables available on the events and presentations page of our IR website and in our form 10K. In the fourth quarter, retail units sold totaled 86,977, a decrease of 23% year over year and 15% sequentially. Our sequential decline in retail units sold was only slightly larger than the industry's sequential decline of 12%, despite several actions we are taking to increase near-term profitability, including one, normalizing inventory size, two, reducing advertising, three, proactively adjusting to increases in benchmark interest rates, and four, continuing to focus on executing our profitability initiatives. Total revenue was $2.8 billion in Q4, a decrease of 24% year-over-year and 16% sequentially, approximately in line with retail units sold. Non-GAAP total GPU was $26.67 in Q4 versus $38.70 in Q3. Total GPU in Q4 was driven by several unique items across the retail, wholesale, and other components. Non-GAAP retail GPU was 632 in Q4 versus 1267 in Q3. Retail GPU was impacted by a $52 million or $598 per unit adjustment to our retail inventory allowance, which was primarily driven by elevated industry-wide retail depreciation rates and higher than normalized inventory size relative to sales volumes. 
Other sequential changes in retail GPU were primarily driven by higher retail depreciation rates, partially offset by wider spreads between retail prices and acquisition prices, and lower costs of sales. In addition to the allowance adjustment, retail GPU was also impacted by carrying a higher than normalized inventory size relative to sales, which resulted in longer turn times. Longer turn times lead to higher vehicle depreciation, which has a negative impact on retail GPU, other things being equal. One way to quantify the impact of extended turn times is to isolate retail GPU for vehicles sold within 90 days of the acquisition date. These vehicles realized approximately $600 per unit higher retail GPU in Q4 compared to retail units in aggregate. Non-GAAP wholesale GPU was $552 in Q4 versus $682 in Q3. Wholesale GPU included a combined $103 per unit impact due to a $5 million adjustment to our wholesale inventory allowance and a $4 million loss on certain retail vehicles we sold in the wholesale market in the quarter. Sequential changes in wholesale GPU were primarily driven by these impacts and lower seasonal wholesale marketplace volume. Non-GAAP other GPU was $1,483 in Q4 versus $1,921 in Q3. Other GPU was primarily impacted by a shift in the timing of a sale of a pool of loans to Ally from December to January to align with the upsize and extension of our forward flow purchase agreement. We estimate this shift in timing reduced other gross profit by $42 million or $483 per retail unit sold based on the actual sales price of the loans we realized in January, less incremental interest income we earned on the loans in December. In Q4, we made significant progress reducing SG&A expenses for the second consecutive quarter, reducing non-GAAP SG&A expense by $60 million sequentially, following a greater than $60 million sequential reduction in Q3. These expense reductions were broad-based, including advertising, compensation and benefits, logistics, and other. While we significantly reduced SG&A expense over the past two quarters, we have not yet meaningfully levered SG&A expense per retail unit sold, because retail units sold have declined at a pace similar to SG&A expense reductions. As Ernie discussed, we expect our weekly retail unit sales volume to stabilize relative to the declines we saw in the second half of 2022, as seasonal headwinds transition to seasonal tailwinds. We expect stabilizing retail unit sales to allow our SG&A expense savings to catch up to retail unit volumes, leading to SG&A leverage. Adjusted EBITDA in Q4 was a loss of $291 million, or 10.1% of revenue. Adjusted EBITDA was negatively impacted by a total of $103 million due to the unique retail, wholesale, and other GPU items described above. Finally, as a result of the decline in trading prices of our securities by the end of the fourth quarter, we recorded a goodwill impairment expense of $847 million. The goodwill impairment was not related to changes in our long-term expectations for our business or the operations of any prior acquisitions. As we've discussed previously, our goal is to manage the business to achieve over 4,000 total GPU and significant adjusted EBITDA profitability at current, higher, or lower volume levels. Focusing in on Q1 2023, we currently expect the following. On retail units, 
We currently expect a sequential reduction in retail units sold in Q1 compared to Q4 as we continue to normalize our inventory size, optimize marketing spend, and make progress on our profitability initiatives. On GPU, we currently expect a sequential increase in total GPU in Q1 compared to Q4. We expect retail GPU to increase in Q1 due to multiple offsetting effects. First, we are quickly reducing our inventory size by purchasing fewer retail vehicles. Purchasing fewer retail vehicles means fewer low-age units are added to the website, which other things being equal, increases the average age of our inventory and of retail units sold and reduces retail GPU. At the same time, we expect our lower inventory size to lead to a retail inventory allowance adjustment benefit in Q1, leading total Q1 retail GPU to be higher than Q4. We also expect a sequential increase in other GPU in Q1 following the shift in the timing of loan sales from December to January previously discussed. On SG&A, we are currently targeting an aggregate of approximately $1 million reduction in quarterly non-GAAP SG&A expense by Q2 2023 compared to Q4 2022, as we continue to execute our plan across all areas of the business. On December 31st, we had approximately $3.9 billion in total liquidity resources, including $1.9 billion in cash and revolving availability and $2 billion in unpledged real estate and other assets including more than $1.1 billion of real estate acquired with Edessa. We also ended the quarter with approximately 1.3 million annual units of inspection and reconditioning center capacity at full utilization, including Edessa locations. Over the last several years, we've made significant investments into building out one of the auto industry's largest and most expansive inspection and reconditioning network. While we remain focused on more efficiently leveraging our existing footprint in the near term, we believe having access to this massive infrastructure positions us very well for growth with limited incremental investment in the future. Our liquidity position, production runway, and our clear and focused operating plan position us well to achieve our goal of driving positive cash flow and becoming the largest and most profitable auto retailer in the future. Thank you for your attention. We will now take questions. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star then one on your telephone keypad. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble our roster. Our first question is from Sharon Zakfia with William Blair. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Ernie, you were sure. talking you were talking really fast. Um but I think you said for I think you said forty percent of vehicles were picked up at vending machines. I think it was in the fourth quarter. I didn't catch what that compared to maybe relative to a year ago. And I guess were you incentivizing to get to that number? It it also begs the question kind of, you know, how high could that go? What is the kind of trade-off in terms of GPU when you get a customer to come to a vending machine for pickup. And I noticed in the shareholder letter, you also mentioned starting to offer pickup at non-vending machine locations. So I guess this is a long question to just ask, are we seeing some sort of evolution in the model, which would be kind of more what I would think of as an omnichannel model versus a pure e-com? 
Sure. So, so first, apologies for the fast talking. That is, uh, that is my habit. Um, and, and so in, in the, uh, in the prepared remarks, I, I didn't compare it to anything. It, it is 40% nationwide, um, at vending machines, even though we only have vending machines in a subset of markets. Um, and that is roughly double since early 2022. Um, we are testing other pickup options as well, and, and we are incentivizing customers, uh, to do that. Um, and what I would say there is I think across the entire business, we're uh, testing all kinds of opportunities to decrease our operational costs and then see what the impact is to both customer speed uh, of getting them a car and also customer experience. Um, and I think this is one of many areas where we're seeing uh, really strong results there. Can I just ask a follow-up? So when you do customer research, I mean, how important is delivery in what the customers want? I mean, it would seem transparency you know, quality of car, the car they're getting, all of that is very important, but is delivery really high on the list? I think it depends on the customer. Um, and I think that's why we've, we've kind of structured the system to give them uh, their option. Um, so I, I think all of those things are important. And I think the easiest thing that we can measure is in aggregate how customers are responding to the sum total of their experience. Uh, and, you know, we are talking now about the vending machine, but there's Many other examples uh, there that I'll, that I'll repeat that I kind of you know, spoke about in my prayer remarks. You know, delivery distance is also down 25% uh, since early 2022. Uh, we talked about activity pairings. That can be a bit of a confusing one to, to make sure that you're understanding. But we've got um, obviously many customers that are buying cars from us. We have many customers that are selling cars to us. And so activity pairing is, is building the logic into our scheduler that allows us to ensure that when a customer leaves uh, a hub or, or a vending machine, they can complete two transactions in a single path which is obviously a lot more efficient. Um, that's gone from about one in 14 customers to approximately one out of three customers um, in the last year. Uh, so, so we're making gains all over the place, um, and we are seeing that really show up in, in operational gains first, which then I think you're starting to get a peek into the impact they'll have financially, but that does take more time. So we tend to roll these out in markets. We get a, a sense for the impact of both customer experience and cost um, and efficiency, and then we, we roll them out uh, nationwide, and then we kind of are able to realize the dollar gains uh, thereafter. So I think, you know, you'll probably start to see more of those gains over the next two quarters, uh, which is why we're feeling really good about our cost reduction plan uh, over the next two quarters. But we've been doing all of that and, and many, many more examples that, that would fit under the same umbrella, um, but, but would take different forms in every group. And we've seen customer experiences go up in the last six months. So I think overall, we're, we're really excited about uh, the way that's playing out. We still have a lot of work to do, but the teams are doing a great job. Okay. Last question for me. I, I know you said you're working towards EBITDA break-even at current volumes. What's your line of sight on timing on that? Uh, as fast as possible. Um, I, I think we're going to be moving as quickly as we possibly can. We gave, I think, some hopefully helpful guide rails in there uh, around driving down SG&A dollars by $100 million um, over the next two quarters. Um, I think Mark uh, spoke quite a bit about some of the GPU visibility that we have that, that is very high, um, You know, something that is imposing a very significant cost. Um, across GPU right now is the choice to drive down our inventory rapidly. We're very confident that's the right choice for the business. Um, sales volumes are, are low relative to the inventory that we're carrying, and therefore our turn times are high. Um, and especially in a high depreciation environment, it's important to get those two things into balance. But the transition from too large of inventory to the right size of inventory means that turn times are even longer. Um, that showed up in, in lower GPU in the quarter and in an allowance that we're taking is, as more of those cars that we expect to sell in the future um, are likely to have negative margins. 
So, you know, that's a transitory cost. Um, you know, if you look at the rate at which we're selling cars relative to the cars that we have in inventory, it, it's a much better number, but the transition is expensive. So I think there's a lot of visibility there. Uh, Mark also spoke a bit about uh, the visibility we have in finance um, as we had a loan sale timing shift in Q4 um, that was costly. So I think there's um, hopefully a lot of building blocks there that will give you a sense. And our goal is, is heads down sprint, um, and we'll get there as quickly as we can. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Chris Bottiglieri with Exane BNP Paribas. Please go ahead. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the question. Um, so the first one is, in Q1, are you still taking provisions to increase the inventory allowance adjustment that's causing pressure retail GPU and wholesale? Is there a way to frame out how much is left, like what percentage of units are 90 days or older and they're still in inventory today? And what's normal look like? I'd imagine this happens routinely, but... Just give us context for what's left. Sure. So, I, I mean, I think the um, I think the there's a couple different ways to think about that. One, I, I wouldn't say there's any concept of what's left. I, I think you know we to set the allowance on 1231. Uh, you know, we looked at the cars that we had on balance sheet on 1231, and then you know we formed formed expectations about. Um, the cars that were going to sell at a loss and at what level um, those cars were going to sell at a loss. And, and then we recorded that allowance on that basis. Um, you know, I do think some of the things that, that benefit um, uh, the inventory allowance is inventory size. Um, I think, you know, shrinking inventory, getting inventory more in line with um, more in line with sales volume. Um, you know, those, those are certainly beneficial from the standpoint of, uh, you know, retail inventory allowance. As you sort of alluded to, you know, a, a retail inventory allowance is something that's always in our results. Um, you know, we adjust our allowance uh, every month, and, and uh, you know, a retail inventory allowance is reflected in our results every quarter. Uh, it just happened to be particularly large on 1231 in light of the dynamics that we saw in Q4 with much higher than normalized inventory size um, and also uh, very uh, elevated industry-wide retail depreciation rates. Um, so that's why it had a, a – uh, an outsized effect on Q4. I think, you know, just, you know, to, to take that point home, I do think, you know, we've made really um, strong moves in normalizing our inventory size in Q4 and so far in Q1. Um, you know, our, our inventory size is, is much closer to a normal size relative to sales volumes than it certainly it was in, in Q4. Um, and, you know, we do think that over time that will flow into uh, positive tailwinds for retail GPU, as we called out uh, throughout our materials. Gotcha. Okay, thanks. And then just, just a bigger picture question, if I can squeeze one more in. Um, when you're speaking of these profitability current levels, are you extrapolating market share of your immature markets to, like, some natural run rate of the mature business? Because if I take your national market share compared to Atlanta or, or some other early market at a similar point in time, was Atlanta profitable on that penetration? Like, I guess, what gives you the, the visibility to achieve profitability at such a low volume level? And I think, it, I think personally, you'll get well above that over time. So I'm not sure why this profitability level, frankly, matters in the near term. But just curious how you're thinking about all that. Sure, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think we mean that in the simplest uh, way it can be interpreted, which is, you know, we believe that we can uh, achieve EBITDA uh, positive at the current volumes that we're at um, across the entire company. We're not uh, extrapolating um, to kind of market shares that we have in some of our more mature 
markets. Um, you know, we've, we're making a ton of, of progress on SG&A, and there's room for a ton more progress, frankly, given all the operational gains that we're seeing. Uh, and there's a lot of visibility in GPU progress as well. Uh, so I, I think, you know, this, this last year has been a, a massive change in priorities for the company. The world changed on us very, very quickly, and we shifted our priorities very, very quickly. And undoubtedly, that's been a difficult transition. Uh, but I think there's no doubt that it's it's leading to a more efficient company. I, I think that is not yet fully showing up in the numbers, but but there's no doubt it's it's showing up very clearly in, in the operational numbers, and we expect it to show up in the numbers um, in the not too distant future. So. We we believe that we can get to to EBITDA positivity uh, you know, at at current volumes and 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 to significantly positive uh, EBITDA at current volumes and then we obviously expect to uh, to continue to grow from there and to get you know e- even more uh, EBITDA positive on a on a unit basis from there as well so I think you know we've we've got a lot of work in front of us but we've got a lot of great visibility as well. Thanks, Ernie. Thank you. The next question is from Rajat Gupta with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Uh, great. Uh, thanks for taking the question. Uh, Ernie, I think uh, the elephant in the room is, you know, the 600 million or so of interest expense. Um, even if you get to EBITDA break-even, you know, at some point next year or later next year, you know, you'll still need to add more debt at some stage to continue to just pay the ongoing uh, additional debt. Um, is there anything you can do or are considering to reduce that burden uh, perhaps some form of restructuring that can take place, you know, leveraging the real estate, um, and find some sort of a middle ground with the bondholders. You know, just curious, you know, what level of engagement you've had there. Um, any broader thoughts on that? Thanks. And I have a follow-up. Thanks. Sure. Well, so, I mean, yeah, I think um, our plan, we try to break into into three steps. Uh, step one is get to EBITDA positive. Uh, you know, we've got to have mile markers along the way. Uh, step two is get to meaningfully positive uh, EBITDA per unit, uh, you know, positive unit economics. And then step three is to start to grow. Um, and, you know, we believe that with that plan, uh, you know, we have believed and continue to believe uh, that we have the opportunity to to you know, run that plan and to not need to raise additional capital. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the question about whether or not we'll raise capital in the future is largely a function of the speed at which we drive down SGNA, the speed at which we drive up GPU, and the speed at which we're able to also drive up units once we, once we bought them. Uh, and, and, you know, subtle changes in the shape of those uh, curves can change the answer quite a bit. So, you know, our plan is, is to not need to raise additional capital, but obviously, you know, we'll, we'll be paying attention. We'll do what we need to do that's, that's right for the business. I, I think we have access to capital in, in many forms. Um, you know, we've obviously got um, a lot of real estate that's very high quality. We have approximately $2 billion of real estate, um, approximately half in Odessa and half um, kind of original Carvana real estate. The majority of that is uh, inspection centers, uh, which are you know, high quality, uh, financeable properties. Um, but we, we've got a lot of other assets as well, and you know we've got capacity to to put in uh, you know more secure debt. We've got capacity to put in more unsecured debt. Uh, obviously, in the future, if we chose to, and we believed it was the right choice, we could raise equity. So I think we have a lot of options um, if uh, if we choose that that's the right path for the company. Uh, but today, we're we're focused on the operating plan uh, that's got our full attention, and and we're marching that uh, to, to hit the numbers that we've outlined. I uh, got it. That's clear. Um, maybe just on SG&A, you know, you talked about the additional $100 million in, in reduction in the first half year, uh, and you also mentioned coming across different buckets. I think one area where uh, I believe you have not seen a meaningful reduction yet is the other SG&A. 
you know, seemingly a bigger fixed component of your SGNA. Is, is, is a good chunk of that 100 million coming uh, from that particular line item? Because I think you mentioned also that you don't expect more forced reductions or, or forced reductions. So just curious, like, if you could help us understand, you know, where that 100 million is coming from. Thanks. Sure. Yeah, so we talked a, a little bit about that in the, in the letter. The um, We do expect the uh, SGNA reductions, the, you know, the, the 100 million in aggregate um, in quarterly expense reductions that we're targeting over the next two quarters to come across the, the major line items. So in that, uh, I would include, um, you know, payroll, I would include, uh, uh, you know, advertising, logistics, and uh, the other expense bucket. I do think there's, you know, we certainly see opportunities to reduce uh, other SG&A expenses, including in categories that you, you may traditionally uh, think of as fixed. You know, I think we you know, have numerous projects ongoing to uh, just be, you know, be more efficient in our uh, corporate and technology expenses. Um, you know, I think there's, um, you know, uh, many, many areas across that um, component of SG&A where we're very focused on efficiency and do expect to gain savings from that component uh, as part of our plan over the next two quarters. Uh, got it. Thanks. Uh, I'll get back in care. Thank you. And the next question is from Seth Basham with Wedbush Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks a lot and good afternoon. Just to follow up on the last question, even if you do hit your break-even EBITDA goal, uh, you're still carrying $100 million plus in CapEx and $600 million in interest expense, so you'd be burning $700 million or so in cash. And uh, your liquidity does support that for a period of time, but eventually you'll run out of time. Uh, how do you expect to address that conundrum? Sure. Well, I think as we discussed, you know, step one of the plan is is break even adjusted EBITDA, and step two is to go beyond that, uh, and then step three is to grow. Uh, so, you know, that, that's that's undoubtedly a milestone in the plan, but it is not the plan, uh, and we think we've got a lot of visibility beyond that. So. Um, as we discussed, we're, we're focused to, to hit that plan, and, and we believe that if we hit it in the ways that, that we're aiming to hit it, uh, we've got a real shot at, at uh, not requiring additional capital. If we're wrong, then we have lots of ways to go out and get additional capital. Got it. And secondly, as it relates to the uh, loan sales to Ally, uh, could you help us understand the margins on those under the new agreement relative to the old agreement and uh, whether there's still uh, substantial loans on the balance sheet at this point in time relative to $1.3 billion that you had at the end of the um, uh, quarter? Sure. So, so I think, um, you know, first order, we, you know, we completed the deal with Ally. Uh, it, it's the seventh year in, in that relationship. That's something that we're extremely proud of. We think it's been a, a great program for both of us. Uh, they've certainly been there for us uh, in difficult times, including recently. Uh, they, they were there for us in COVID, and we would like to think that we've been great partners to them as well, uh, especially in better times, and that they've had access to high-quality uh, loans that are generally outperforming similar credit-quality loans uh, across that entire time. So I, I think that's been a great partnership for us. And, and I think um, as we headed to uh, you know, the end of the year, um, you know, we had a, a bunch of loans that we were looking to, to sell. We were also getting that renewal done, um, and it, it made sense to, to kind of complete the renewal first and, and push that uh, over the year. So we, we had approximately a billion dollars of extra loans um, that, that shifted over year-end. As part of that deal, as you'd imagine, uh, you know, Ally d does have more uh, spread than they've historically had, uh, but that spread is, is reflective of market conditions, um, which is kind of the structure that we generally have in our deal. Um, and, and then we take those spreads and 
uh, you know, we pass them on, and, and that enables us to earn similar finance GPUs uh, to, to what we've earned in the past. Uh, so I think that's been a, a great deal for us. It gives us certainty of execution, um, and they've been a great partner for a long time, and, and we couldn't be happier with it. And then in addition, uh, you know, today we also closed uh, our first securitization of the year. Um, so, you know, we'll continue to operate a, a multi-channel strategy. Um, and, and, you know, we plan to, to catch up uh, on loan sales uh, in the first half this year. Thank you. The next question is from Zachary Fadum with Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Hey, thanks, guys. This is uh, Sam Reed, pitch hitting for Zach Fadum. Uh, first big picture, kind of what's the assumption for industry volumes that you're embedding in your Q1 unit outlook? And does that sequential pullback you're looking for mirror uh, what you're seeing across the industry? Uh, thanks, and then I've got one other industry follow-up. Sure. Yeah, so, so let me start a, a little bigger picture. I, I think um, you know, we're now a 10-year-old company, and I think for uh, basically for, for nine years of our of our life, well, we were in a reasonably stable environment. We were certainly in a stable environment for seven and a half years of our life, and then we went through COVID, but we still had somewhat similar, um, you know, used vehicle sales volume at the at the industry level. And then I think for the last year, we, we saw those volumes at the industry level drop by, you know, on the order of 10%, give or take. And I certainly think that has correlated uh, with a bunch of choices that we've made to, to shrink up and to focus on on profitability. Um, and I think basically with, with more pressure on independents, even relative to franchise dealers. And so undoubtedly the last year has been a, a you know much slower year for us it's the first year uh where we actually shrunk by three percent you know we've grown very very quickly in all previous years and so i think the correlation is there where when the market was shrinking you know we were shrinking and when the market was stable we were growing i do think that that is more correlation than it is direct causation you know the, the market moving up or down by 10 percent relative to all the growth rates that we've seen in every year of our life prior to this year would be very very small uh you know relative to, to how quickly we were growing uh, so I think, of course, we always have, um, you know, something of an embedded view uh, around, you know, what's going to happen at the industry level. But we generally don't think that that's the biggest driver of our success. I, I think it happens to have correlated because many things occurred, uh, most notably interest rates shooting up and car price shooting up over the last year uh, that had a real impact on the industry in general, but us in particular. Um, so I would say probably the best way to, to evaluate that is, you know, we generally are looking at the market being flattish uh, go forward, but we also, I, I don't think, are, are ever speaking in terms that are precise enough to where likely movements in the macro uh, industry level sales volumes are, are that likely to impact us super dramatically. We would expect them to flow through to our results in the same way that they impact the industry um, in some total. And then, I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? Well, no, it's, it's just another it's just another industry question here. You know, it kind of follows on advertising and 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 volumes. You know, you've seen you've seen you guys have done a good job of pulling back on advertising. But what are you seeing kind of across the industry? And is there a similar pullback that's taking place across your peer set? And as you pull back on advertising, you know, can you compare and contrast your share of voice today versus where it might have been before you started to pull back? Sure. Um, well, well, let's start with the, the maybe peers in automotive, because um, I, I think the automotive world, um, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of interesting things happening over the last year and a half that, that, that you know, are, are probably more distorted than any, any period that I can remember in, in my career. And when I say distorted, I just mean uh, abnormal. Uh, there's been a lot of things that have been abnormal. So you know, we went through this period where cars very rapidly appreciated, and for the most part, um, consumers were in a good enough spot where that didn't necessarily impact 
um, industry level sales volumes that much in in 2022 as we saw you know cars start to slowly come down but rates go up we saw affordability stay in a in a pretty similar spot but we saw the industry generally get softer I think franchise dealers have done incredibly well uh, through the last two years I think if, if you kind of graph their you know, pick your, your kind of bottom line metric, but, but to make it comparable to ours, if you grab their uh, EBITDA margins over you know, the last 20 years, you, you would see um, extreme outliers over the last couple of years. I think that, you know, while new volumes have gone down, uh, you know, new margins have gone up by more than the, than the volumes have gone down. And so there's been a lot of profitability there. I think uh, given how high car prices are, they've been able to convert uh, many would-be new car buyers into used car buyers. Um, and they've had uh, an advantage supply of used cars as they've been returned off lease. Um, and those off-lease returns were priced in a completely different vehicle price environment, so they're able to acquire those cars at residuals that are far below the the market value. Um, you know, e- even though historically, on average, residuals roughly approximated the the market value. And so, I think for franchise dealers, it's been a great environment, and I think many of them have not been super aggressively pulling back. If if we speak kind of an aggregate over the last year and a half, I think. For independents, there's probably two categories there as well. There's those that were buying strictly from auction and those that were buying elsewhere. I think. For those buying strictly from auction, it's been a very tough environment because, you know, the auction is a place where there's also been, uh, you know, dramatic changes over the last couple of years. Um, and it's been hard to acquire cars to carry you know, a, a normal relative to history margin there. Um, I think for those that have acquired cars uh, from customers at, at meaningful scale, I think the last couple of years have actually been somewhat average um, from a profitability perspective. And, and so I think, you know, most of those retailers have probably played uh, kind of a, a relatively average game from an advertising perspective over the last couple of years. So uh, I think those things are starting to change a little bit as we saw the market soften. Uh, a little bit uh, in 2022, we've recently seen the market be reasonably strong um, as it relates to changes in prices. Uh, early this year, I think a lot of dealers probably came into the year with low inventories and weren't feeling super confident uh, after November and December. And, um, uh, you know, there's normally kind of a seasonal inventory build and car price appreciation around this time of year when, when tax money is coming. And we've definitely seen that this year. And then I think there's another peer set as well, which is kind of, you know, growth companies and technology companies out there. And I think that peer set has undoubtedly pulled back materially on marketing. Um, I think the moves there have probably been, uh, you know, much more dramatic. Um, and and we are certainly pulling back uh, pretty dramatically on marketing. I think, you know, you can see that in our results in Q4, uh, and there's certainly more of that to come. Um, you know, we're in a unique environment where GPUs are lower than they've been um, in the recent past. And in, in kind of all else constant, that means fewer transactions make sense to acquire. Uh, we've also focused, you know, almost exclusively on, on profitability o- over the last year. Um, that means many transactions that we would have um, acquired because we believe that they made sense over a longer term uh, time horizon. Uh, we, we have not been acquiring more recently. Uh, and then the customer responsiveness is, is different um, in this environment. And so we've been retesting all of our different marketing channels uh, in many ways, uh, most effectively through our many markets. Uh, you know, we'll use our markets as laboratories to turn on and off different marketing channels to try to assess uh, what we think the effectiveness is uh, of any given marketing channel. And, and I think that we found that in this environment, uh, in, in most cases, there's room for us to probably pull back quite a bit on marketing because um, we're not getting the return that we've gotten in the past. Uh, and so we're doing that. We're, we're doing that purposefully. Uh, you know, we're, we're making sure we roll out those tests and we do it in a way that doesn't uh, derail the entire business and cause it to get out of balance. Um, but I think that there's there's real economic opportunity there for us to pull back on marketing and, 
And so we've been doing that and we'll likely do that. Uh, when we do that, we're much more likely to pull back in direct marketing channels than we are in brand channels. I think, you know, one of the reasons that we're able to efficiently pull back on, on marketing spend today is because we've been able to build a high quality brand over a long period of time. And so we want to be careful that we preserve that and continue to invest in that brand. Uh, but, but I do think there's opportunities in, uh, in these direct channels. And, and I think you're starting to see that show up in, in some of our results. So that, that was a long answer to uh, a question you partially asked. Uh, I hope it was helpful. Um, but, but that's, that's how we're thinking about all that. No, much appreciated. Thanks so much. Thank you. The next question is from Winnie Dong with Deutsche Bank. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks so much for uh, taking my question. I was wondering if you can give us an update on sort of uh, the integration of Odessa and where you are with footprint integration relative to the logistical savings that can be achieved for the benefit of uh, GPU. And then your, your prepare remark mentioned, you know, getting back to that $4,000 in GPU. I was wondering if you can frame it around, you know, what you think uh, the time frame is to achieving that. That's uh, my first question. And then I have a follow-up. Thanks. Great. Um, sure. So, so I think, you know, we're making a ton of progress with the integration of Odessa. Um, Odessa has um, 56, you know, incredible sites uh, around the country, and we currently have 75% of the cars that we buy from customers that we plan to sell wholesale that are now landing at Odessa properties. Um, th that's a really significant change from obviously where we were, you know, six months ago or, or certainly 12 months ago when, when we, you know, prior to the acquisition. Um, that's very helpful from an efficiency perspective. It means those cars are on the ground in a location uh, where they can get rapidly inspected and sold. Uh, it means that the transportation to those locations is much less than it would have historically been because we're closer to Odessa. Uh, and so you'll start to see that um, flowing through in our, in our wholesale margin. Uh, you know, that footprint is, is incredible, and we really look forward to the gains that we'll continue to get um, in wholesale, in logistics, and ultimately in reconditioning over time. Uh, but, but I think a lot of those gains will come uh, you know, more when we get to step three of the equation, which is, which is turning uh, growth back up. Uh, in the meantime, the, the Adest team has been doing a great job. It's been a tough uh, couple years for auction businesses. I, I think, you know, post-pandemic has been a very odd time for the auction business in general. Um, but they've been doing a great job. They've got a great plan. Uh, we feel good about the path that they're on. Um, and so we're excited there. Um, and then as relates to, to the time frame to getting back to, to 4,000 uh, GPU, you know, I, I apologize for not being uh, more precise in this response, but I think we tried to give um, some, some building blocks that we think are, are pretty big. And so I'll just, I'll repeat some of those. Um, if you kind of, you know, start with our GPU that was at about 2,600, um, and then you look at kind of the retail allowance, which we obviously don't expect to be uh, a recurring item. You know, that would get you up $600. Um, if you look at our wholesale allowance, which is the same concept but exists in our wholesale inventory, that's another $100. Uh, if you look at the shift in our loan sale timing, you know, that's just shy of $500. Uh, Mark gave a helpful stat um, that, that uh, talked about our, our sales of cars that are less than 90 days aged in Q4, which would have been an additional $600 um, on top of on top of all of that, um, you know, we still have uh, significant room in our in our non-vehicle cogs. Uh, we called out that there was probably $600 of possible gains there, um, you know, in Q1 or Q2 relative to uh, what we had achieved in the past. We probably have three or four hundred dollars of of additional gains there to be had. Uh, we're, we're getting those gains more slowly um, as a result of shrinking our inventory than we might have otherwise if we weren't shrinking our inventory. Shrinking our inventory means that we're buying fewer cars, and it means that the overhead of the inspection centers is spread 
uh, between fewer cars, um, and there's there's some efficiency impacts um, when you're buying fewer cars, but that's also transitory. So I think that's a big opportunity for us, uh, and there are others. So I, I think the opportunity is all there. It's, it's very clear. We just have executing to do, and, and we'll go get it. Great. Thanks so much. Um, and then I was wondering if you can also comment on sort of like the go for strategy in terms of mix of inventory. Um, I, I think you have previously indicated that you're uh, going to go on a go for basis, going to tailor toward lower price inventory, just given the current macro conditions. Can you give us a sense of this, that something's done at plan, um, you know, amid, amid your plan to reduce inventory? Thanks. Sure. Yeah, I, I could take that one. So just to set the stage a little bit, so the, you know, the way we typically approach inventory mix is, you know, by evaluating um, what our customers are shopping for on the site and balancing that against, um, you know, what we're seeing in the market in terms of what customers or other uh, suppliers are selling. And, and the combination of those two things, uh, you know, dictate what mix of inventory we end up putting on the site. I would say, you know, we've talked a lot about inventory on this call and, and certainly um, our inventory uh, has been too large uh, uh, relative to sales volume. We were working uh, very ambitiously to correct that. In, in terms of mix, um, I, I wouldn't say there's any particular uh, patterns to call out. Um, you know, I think the I, I think we'll continue to evaluate as we look forward from, you know, where we are here in Q1 and just, you know, be reading the demand signals, reading the supply signals, uh, and doing our best to balance the two of those. But right now, I don't think that points to any particular um, shift that's worth, worth calling out at this time. Okay, great. Thank you so much. The next question is from Michael Montani with Evercore ISI. Please go ahead. Uh, hey, thanks for taking the question. Uh, just wanted to ask if I could, um, when do you think that you would be in a position to kind of switch back to offense with respect to taking market share again? You know, would it be potentially third quarter uh, when the SGNA reductions would have been substantively made? And if it is, you know, do you need to basically start growing SGNA at an accelerated pace to take market share? Or do you think there's enough muscle that you could just be more productive, I guess, at a lower run rate moving forward. Sure. So I think um, it, it's the third step in the plan right now. Uh, and the reason it's the third step in the plan is that I do think, you know, we were one of the more aggressive growth companies out there for, for you know, the, the entirety of our life, basically from you know, when we started 10 years ago until, uh, until about a year ago. Um, and, that that requires an alignment of thousands of people uh, with priorities and 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 what's being you know done and and how we're working on things and how we make decisions uh, and I think that it's a lot of work and it's uh, very difficult to to turn that um, you know quickly and focus you know completely on profitability which is what we've done over the last 12 months. Um, and there are definitely some, I would say, transition costs, um, you know, to, to just, you know, get thousands of people aligned on a new set of goals um, that we're all equally excited about and that we have a lot of work to do and a lot of gains to be had. And, and so I think we've paid those kind of fixed costs to transition. And I think as a result, you know, we'll probably hang out here with priorities that look more like our current priorities uh, for a little longer than 
than might even be kind of optimal given what the, the market is, is putting in front of us, uh, just because it's, it is expensive to, to have these big priority changes. And, and so I don't know exactly when that'll be. I think even over the last, you know, three or four months, we've learned a lot as we've gone. You know, many of these things that we do, we outline projects that we think make sense. And then we roll them out and then we, we learn what the, what the reality is. Uh, they have some impacts to customer experience. They have some impacts to customer conversion. They have some impacts to our underlying costs and they suggest, uh, an optimal path forward as it relates to the balance of, uh, the way that we pull those levers and, and the volume that we sell. And so I think, you know, what we've seen over the last three or four months is more of our projects are, are probably having bigger operational gains than we may have kind of hoped for, but they're also pushing in the direction of, of fewer sales. And so you know, that's where we've aggressively shifted in the last um, several months toward a smaller inventory, um, and we plan to kind of catch and bottom at a smaller uh, level of sales than we probably would have imagined even six months ago. And I think we still have learning to do because there's still many, many of these projects in our backlog uh, that we're rolling out. So I don't think we know exactly what the answer uh, to that question is, uh, but I, I don't think it's obvious it has to be a super long time. And I think when it's time for growth, um, you know, we're going to head into growth a much more efficient company. We're going to head into growth a company that knows exactly how to do that. And we're going to head into growth a company that has uh, an infrastructure advantage that is materially different than the infrastructure advantage we had, um, you know, when we, when we were growing last time. So I think th- that'll be an exciting time. Uh, it's not obvious it's that far away, but I don't think we yet know exactly when it is. And, and for now, we're going to keep our heads down on the plan that we outlined. Got it. And if, if I could just quickly follow up on one other angle was uh, EBITDA. So for this year, you know, I was getting to, you know, EBITDA loss in the 400 to 600 million range for 2023. And that's basically like a slight decline in units, you know, low 3,000s in total GPU, SGNA improvements like you've discussed, and so kind of a billion plus of cash burn if you include the interest expense. I didn't know if you'd care to kind of comment on any of that or any key drivers that could give upside or downside to consider. I would suggest reading our shareholder letter. I, I think we talk a lot about um, some of the, the near-term drivers um, of profitability um, as well as a sort of broader way to think about our, our plan. And I think, um, I, I think that will most likely be helpful for uh, you know, trying to shed, shed some light on our near-term expectations. Thank you. The next question is from Ron Josie with Citi. Please go ahead. Great. Thanks for taking the question here. Hey, Mark, I wanted to ask more about um, supply and just how you balance the supply reductions with demand and conversion rates and and wondering how this sort of conversion rates are trending. I'm assuming they're coming down simply because people might not have what they're looking for. And so just historically, I understand inventory is coming down, just wondering on conversion there. And then maybe on the flip side of the marketing questions, you know, Ernie, we've We've seen the reduced marketing investments. Just talk to us about any lessons learned in terms of maybe awareness or traffic as you pull back on advertising. I think you said some of it didn't have a positive or as positive an ROI. Maybe just talk about just inherent sort of awareness of Carvana that you don't need to market as much going forward and maintain sort of the sales sales as they are. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, sure. So let's start with the first question. I, I think um, uh, undoubtedly, uh, you know, inventory impacts conversion. And so as inventory uh, is reduced, we expect uh, conversion to, to also be reduced. And so sales to be reduced, all else constant. Um, I think the way that we can kind of try to think about that and reduce that to, to a math equation that is going to kind of you know, flow into the, the second question 
is we can basically say, okay, you know, given our estimates of, of inventory elasticity, um, what is the, the sales benefit um, of, of carrying a larger inventory? And then what is the depreciation cost of carrying a larger inventory? And we can compare those two, and we can effectively get to a customer acquisition cost for those uh, incremental transactions. And, you know, the, the way all that math works is, you know, you, you want at, at any given level of depreciation, you have kind of an optimal balance of inventory relative to sales, which shows up in a, in a turn time goal. And then the way you kind of shift around that is when depreciation is higher, you want to have a smaller inventory. And when depreciation is lower, you want to have a larger inventory. Uh, and I think, you know, we're A, in a, well, right now we're actually kind of in a, in a, you know, maybe even appreciating environment in the wholesale market, but uh, but we've been for a year in a rapidly depreciating environment, and I think probably the smarter guess over the next year or two is that it will be a depreciating environment on average because car prices are, uh, you know, so elevated relative to other goods. So that, as well as the fact that we have, you know, uh, until recently uh, had a, a large inventory relative to sales, both point in the same direction, which is the optimal inventory is smaller. Um, and as discussed earlier, that's costly. Um, in terms of the margin we realize as we're, as we're transitioning out of that large inventory and to some degree is also costly as it relates to sales. Um, but we can do all the math on that and, and try to make the smartest choices we can. I think, you know, we talked a lot on the way up about the positive feedback in the business. As the business gets bigger, it gets better. And it is also true that when we are shrinking, um, that creates kind of negative feedback loops that we have to be mindful of um, and make it a little bit harder. But that's all taken into account as we uh, build out our plans and, and, you know, calculate what we think is uh, the best set of moves in this environment given our current priorities. So um, I think the impacts are exactly as you'd uh, expect directionally, and then I hope that was a helpful color in terms of the way that we think about it and the way that it impacts the business. On marketing, I would say uh, you know, there's a lot of potential learnings there. Um, you know, we're in a pretty different world than we were two years ago, and so I think uh, we ought to be careful to not extrapolate them as absolute uh, truths. We have to we have to evaluate what we're learning as things that are true in this environment. Uh, I think it is highly likely that our brand is materially stronger than it was a couple of years ago. And I think as we go through and we reevaluate various marketing channels, I think that does seem to be having an impact on uh, what we think the ROI is of, of those various channels. You know, again, I, I reserve the right to, to kind of end up being wrong on that, but I think that's what the data um, looks like today. I, I think a, a general learning is it's important, uh, you know, when you're growing fast and the business is rapidly changing to, to make sure that you revisit decisions that you previously made that might have been made under, under different contexts. Um, and I, I think that marketing looks like, like there may be some um, opportunities there as well where under different contexts there were choices that made more sense than they make uh, under today's context. Um, and I think that so far what we've learned has pushed us in the direction of lower marketing, but Again, marketing is a um, marketing is a, is a delicate thing because you're building a brand, which is a very hard to measure thing, um, and, and it's very important that you continue to build that brand. And so, I think you know you want to take care. Um, and, and it's I think easier to move with more conviction um, in a more quantitative way when you're talking about direct channels because those have less of an immediate brand impact. They still have a brand impact because they show up in terms of extra transactions, and then those people that buy cars from you tell their friends and family about it. Um, but they have less brand impact uh, than the brand channels. And so, you know, we will be more careful with the brand channels, but we'll be careful in general. Uh, and we're definitely doing a lot of testing as we move down in, in total marketing spend. Thank you, Ernie. Appreciate it. Thank you. This concludes our question and answer session. 
I would like to turn the conference back over to Ernie Garcia for any closing remarks. Perfect. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining the call. Uh, to everyone on Team Carvana, thank you so much for the work you guys are doing. This has been uh, a, a tough year, undoubtedly. We've made huge strides, massive changes, a huge pivot in priorities. Um, and I'm just always reminded of how much you care and how much you fight. Uh, this is a team of fighters. You guys have been fighting hard, and it is showing up. It's going to keep showing up. Uh, we've still got some fighting left to do, uh, but we're going to do it. So thanks to all. We'll talk to you guys next quarter. The conference is now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect.